Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. Before this episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast, I want to tell you about the greatest season that was presents 99, the semifinal. It's an oral history combining all of the key moments and all of the key people from the great team of the greatest season that was presents. It's available now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's an iconic match, and it's captured brilliantly by Adam Collins, Shannon Gill, and Dan Bredick. Check it out. Let us know what you think. The Final Word Cricket Podcast is part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. If you like it and you're listening to this, chances are you do. Tell your friends about it. Rate it and review it. It really does help. That's enough from me. Now here's Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall, just for what I did well. This is, once again, The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Possibly your favourite cricket podcast, certainly ours, on the show today. Uh, we've talked a lot about England and Australia lately, so we wanted to check in on the other much-neglected member of the Big Three, India, uh, to work out what's going on at the Games Financial Centre in terms of the new world order of COVID-19. Bharat Sundaresan of CrickBuzz will be joining us to chat through that. And uh, we will also look at other cricketing countries in the weeks to come. It's not only going to be Australia, England and India all the time. Let's get on to some Scotland, some Nigeria and elsewhere around the world. Uh, Spit and neutral umpires are out, but sweat is in. Uh, You can join a sweat band. We'll be talking about that on the show today, uh, where things are up to in Australia and England. And of course, our regular beloved segments like Nerd Pledge, Happy Birthday Sachin and all the rest. Joining me on the show today, Adam Collins, who's gesturing madly off screen to have a baby (laughs) delivered to him uh, as we speak. G'day, Jeff. It was actually to Rach, my partner, who's losing her mind to my left today. She slept about three hours last night when he had one of those evenings. So uh, in the best possible way, she was just gesturing to me then. She was had a big smile on her face. I think she was just trying to distract me knowing that we were recording, which she's perfectly entitled mm. to do. So, uh, But no, it's uh, it's going well over here. Uh, lots to talk about today as ever, and I'm glad we've got Butt Up back on the show. I think I mentioned in our conversation with him, he's been a guest on the show a couple of times before uh, the last time we caught up with him. Uh, it was on the eve of the World Cup final and, and what a uh, what a mighty final that was. So good to get him mm-hmm. back to talk all things IPL in a week that has been mostly dominated by conversations in Australia and England. And you have been flogging yourself to death trying to put together the Calling the Shots show, the other podcast about the history of cricket commentary, which I've been enjoying not doing um, because <laughs> I've been doing other stuff instead. But tell me about that. It's big. Uh, yeah, it's a big project. Uh, we've been over six parts, Daniel Norcross and I are sort of telling the story of cricket commentary across 100 years, so going all the way back to the early 20s where we uh, picked up the story in England and then over in Australia and back and forth. And then last week we, we did uh, about 50 years in, in the second uh, second half of the 20th century in about 50 minutes looking at the, the rise of Test Match Special and the way it became an institution through the middle part of, well, I suppose through the 60s and 70s when it finally got an opportunity to broadcast ball-by-ball cricket every single day and how it became the, the juggernaut that it is today. So it, it's 
a big project. Takes a lot out of both of us to do and pull together. Great guests uh, each time we've done it, and it's on the final word feed as well. So if you haven't listened yet, and if you love your cricket commentary, you love your cricket on the radio, I suspect this is going to be right up your alley. Excellent. Um, I haven't been helping you because I've been trying to write the next book, um, not exactly a sequel to the last one, but kind of, mm. I guess it's about last the last summer in the UK, the World Cup and the Ashes, the Magic Summer, and the the weird conflicted idea of um, sporting redemption stories of... Uh, people being absolved for deeds on the field, uh, absolved of things that they did off the field or or, um, similarly, I suppose. I just love the idea that after last year we went and spent an afternoon at Embargo Nightclub in Bristol that you'll get an opportunity to revisit that in print <laughs> in book form. <laughs> it, it feels like one of those places that will continue to reappear in my life time and time again as I've probably mentioned on the final word before a month before the Stokes incident petition entourage and I uh, had a reasonably big night on the tiles on a Sunday night in Bristol as well which Mm. which ended up at Embargo and ended up with us probably eating the same cheesy chips, which became a part of the conversation later on as well. So, And then, of course, yeah, we went mm. there last year. We also went there during the World Cup to take a look when Australia were playing at Bristol. So, um, But, yes, now you'll be doubtless devoting quite a bit of energy to recreating that night uh, way back in 2017. <laughs> the main problem with writing about it is that I've had relentlessly through my head the, the song One Night in Bangkok from the musical Chess from the 80s but replacing Bangkok with Bristol. One night in Bristol can make a grown man stumble. Um, and, and so that that's just kept going around and around in my head. But in terms of interesting things that I discovered, I was like, all right, I now need to watch One Night in Bangkok on YouTube because sometimes when you've got a song in your head, it's best just to lean into it. And I noticed that it was being sung. I, I hadn't really got into the cast of chess before. I hadn't dug deep on this. The guy's name is Murray Head. And I'm thinking that sounds like a familiar name, not not related to Travis Head, but but he did have a slight resemblance to another head, another English head, if you will. So I, I had a dig around and it turns out my suspicion was right. He's the brother of Anthony Stewart Head, who mm. played Giles on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> so Giles's brother is the one night in Bangkok guy with the white suit um, and the terrible video clip and the saxophone solos. That's that's the brother of Giles. Time very well spent, Jeff, uh, in Iceland. I love that, I mean, in both cases, you and I both, you know, pretty Pretty busy at the moment uh, pulling together our yeah. respective projects, yet we find time to send each other messages about the most inane things that we're finding while we're procrastinating along <laughs> the way. It's, it's required. Well, I've got one for you as well. I've got a little treat that I uncovered Ooh. during the week and I popped it in my pocket. Now, I know that you'll be very familiar with the dismissal of Rodney Hogg in a 1984 test match where he famously or infamously backs away about two metres outside the leg stump, mm. gets hit on the pad while shouldering arms and the ball ricochets onto his stumps yep. and he's, he's, he's clean bowled, not offering a shot. And it'd be safe to say, right, that that, that um, dismissal was famous certainly during the younger parts of our lives, totally. got replayed an awful lot. Yeah, I mean, you've, you would you would have come across it plenty of times, right? Yeah, yeah, against the West Indies towards the end of his Test career, and uh, and and mates look a bit a bit daft back when fast bowlers weren't expected to show any serious resistance um, against their their uh, their opposing numbers. They were just basically mm. there to to to, uh, to get out the way, not get hurt, and if they can make contact a couple of times, well, well, so be it. But yes, it was early in the helmet era which also meant that fast bowlers became fair game for bouncers which wasn't really the case in mm. uh, in the pre-helmet era when there was uh, almost a code of sorts between 
quick so that they wouldn't bump each other. But yeah, in, in the 80s when helmets were uh, becoming a, a part of the armoury, uh, as were the bouncers to each other and, and thus mm. uh, there's some rather comical scenes. Now, what interested me about this dismissal when I was looking at it over the last week, the bowler is Michael Holding, right? Now, that, that wicket, that particular bold dismissal, that was Michael yeah. Holding's 213th test wicket. Ooh. We spent a lot of time the other week discussing the number 213, <laughs> 213. Michael Holding's 213th test wicket was that famous dismissal. And it was in the test match where Courtney Walsh made his debut. So Courtney yep. Walsh, who went on to become the highest wicket-taking fast bowler in the world for quite a long time with, what is he, 524? I think it's 519. He, that, 519 stands out, but yeah, you probably, yeah, whatever it is, I know it's above 500. His journey to 500 test wickets started on the day that Michael Holding took his 213th, his 213. So I just thought I'd share that with you. That's lovely. It looks funny on the scorecard back in, in that era because, yeah, Walsh bowls second change in, in that in that innings mm. in, in 1984, which, yeah, often the case was when the Windies were playing four quicks, these, these greats of the game were, were sort of not taking the new ball when they were coming on, yeah, second change, and, and Walsh was, was playing that role on that occasion. We're also hoping on the show today, if schedules line up, to talk to Matthew Beggs, who's a long-time listener in a, a new little segment that we'll be doing towards the back end of the show with some people who've been supporters of the show. But we're going to start today in a place where we didn't expect to be starting seven days ago. We didn't necessarily predict we'd be talking about Steve Waugh, but here we are talking about Steve Waugh, Adam. Yeah, I mean, didn't expect it, but not surprised at all. It would, perhaps would be the best way of framing <laughs> up uh, this, this conversation. I love that two friends of the show were very involved in, in kicking this off. So it, it's, it's a Rob Linder special. And Sam Perry's involved as well from the great cricketer, our great mate from over there. He replied to the Crick Info stat, I think it was, uh, that, that appeared saying that Steve Waugh had been involved in runouts on 74 occasions in his test career where the other batsman was dismissed and... What was it, 74 out of 112 or something 73. like that? Out of 73 out of 104. 104, sorry, yeah, right. Okay, and and Sam put to Rob that, that he should make a compilation of these 73 dismissals and uh, and Rob was happy to oblige and the video went Yeah, bananas, because he's a expect. fucking lunatic. He, he, spent, he spent 24 hours without sleeping looking up every <laughs> bit of old footage he had to find every run out uh, and then putting them all together into a glorious one hour plus long compilation, which yeah. I have watched all of. No, and I haven't. And I think that um, I, I, I plan to. But, uh, Treat yourself. Got in the way. But um, it, it predictably... Uh, now, Shane Warne has been engaging with Rob's tweets a bit of late in this lockdown period where Rob's mm. been sort of pulling out some of his greatest hits, a lot of which include Warne's uh, feats on the field. Uh, and he immediately leapt on the tweet, Jeff, and then the story uh, of, of Warne and War, um, you know, chapter 27 or whatever it is now, the, the volume of times, the number of times that Warne has just kicked off on uh, whatever platform he's on about Steve Warne. You don't get to hear it. In Australia, but when Warren was working for Sky Television over here, I think he finished up a couple of years ago now. But when he was on Sky, uh, every I mean, you couldn't get through a test match without him talking about Steve Waugh being selfish. It was almost a drinking game type thing. So, I mean, you get a, a certain amount mm. of it in Australia, but it was constant in England in, in this market where he perhaps got got away with it a bit more, and there wasn't as much scrutiny on what he was saying. I mean, Jeff, you did the right thing and went and actually went through the video and wrote about it because you <laughs> took the view and reasonably that it requires interrogation. Simply saying 73 out of uh, 102 doesn't quite do it. You need to go through the runouts to understand one way or the other where whether the, hmm. the criticism of war is fair or not. Yeah, and also it comes from a 
bonkers starting point, which is 21 years after Shane Warne got dropped for one test match. One test mm. match. He played 145 test matches. He missed one. And he's still sore about it. He's still actually mad about it and still complaining that the, that, that Steve Waugh should have backed him and that, and that Steve Waugh was selfish. I, I would put to you that selfish might be a player saying, while playing really badly towards the end of a series with a key match coming, a player saying, oh, I shouldn't be dropped, someone else should be left out because I want to play. I would, I would contend that maybe that could be viewed as selfish, you know, just, just, just floating out a crazy alternative theory there. Yeah, and, and the way this story's been told in the past is that Steve Waugh wanted him chopped and Warren, who was vice-captain, of course, uh, on that tour, was going to be backed by Alan Border, who was the selector on duty. But Rob also posted a clip of Alan Border uh, on television, just after that decision had been made in 1999. And Border's clearly behind it 100%, the way that Border communicates the decision about Warren having taken two wickets in his previous three test matches. It doesn't really... We don't really need to relitigate the case because Warren did it himself when he was talking to Brendan Vavola on that, on I'm a Celebrity a few years ago. And Vavola's final question was what? So they were justified in doing it because they won. And Warren sort of lamentably says, yeah, it was justified. Or words to that effect. Without realising mm. that, like, in its, he, he'd, he'd made the point of... Uh, uh, of his of his adversary there and then, but yeah. yes, it, I mean it, it, it's it's unfortunate because I thought we had reached the stage, Jeff, a few weeks ago. Was it when Warren named his greatest team of all time or whatever it was, and he put Steve War in there, and it was a bit of a story in itself that we we'd got past this, but yet uh, you know we, we keep talking about it. Greg Baum, we go. Uh, well, Greg Baum's got a hold of Steve War as well, who, as usual, maintains his dignified sort of not silence, but he just doesn't engage. He gives a bit of a backhander to Shane, saying, you know, that he's just not interested in in replying. It's, it's only a thing for Shane, not for him, which is probably the best possible answer he can give. But as I said before, Jeff, you, you actually went through the runouts, and it doesn't stack mm. up anyway. Well, yeah. So, so the the allegation, the litigation, is that Steve was a selfish player, and that's borne out because a lot of the time his partner was run out. The large bulk of the runouts in the tape are in the the dying overs of a one day international where you take the risks and you take as many runs as you can get and often they're lower order partners as well. So if you can sacrifice your wicket and get the established batter back on strike, that's what you do because that's the way you should be playing the game. There's a whole bunch of runouts with Mark War as well. They had a particularly terrible chemistry but there are also <laughs> just a lot of ones that are obviously the other players fault. You know, Fat Cat Richie um, features quite often and has some absolutely terrible calls from him where he runs himself out a lot. There's some brilliant fielding from some of the you know the great West Indies players of the time swooping and, and throwing in and finding batsmen inches short and there were only a handful when I watched through the tape that were actual barbecues where there'd been a terrible call made. So it's not like something is deeply consistent. When you've got a guy who played, I think, what did he have, 569 international innings or something for Australia, mm. you know, second only to Ponting, there's probably going to be a few runouts in there. And then the other thing I looked at was this idea that he's selfish because he used to give the strike to tail enders when he was batting and therefore that was bad because he was protecting his average. There's this idea that, because Steve Waugh has a lot more not outs than Ricky Ponting, for instance. Ricky Ponting batted at first drop for most of his career. Steve Waugh batted at five or six. He's still got the record for the most test runs from number six. He played a huge amount of his cricket there. So, of course, if you play an awful lot of test matches at number six, you're likely to be not out more often because you bat with the tail. And then we saw during his career, the way that he played with the tail was always you know, to, to give them the strike in order to tell them that he expected them to play well. He expected them to buckle down and bat responsibly and bat with him and build partnerships and that it worked. 
because over time, the interesting one that I found was him batting with Glenn McGrath as the number 11. They batted together 17 times and the first 11 times didn't go very well. They, they averaged six and a bit because McGrath would generally get out. But the last six times they batted together, they averaged nearly 30 across those last six stands um, over the last few years of their career. And that's, I think, purely a function of Steve Waugh saying to Glenn McGrath, I want you to bat with me, you're a batsman. We know that Glenn McGrath famously worked on his batting a lot during that particular era. He tried really hard to, you know, got in the nets, he got his average up from about two to about seven and a half. So I think there's enough in all of that statistical info to show you that there was a reason, there was a strategy to it rather than just something that was convenient. And the other point there, of course, being that Steve Waugh was McGrath's individual batting coach. I mean, the whole idea was that Waugh was trying to cultivate McGrath as a number 11 so that he wouldn't be such a liability uh, when having to bat at important times. And so it proved to be true. And as you had in your piece, Jeff, there, was a, there were a number of times where Waugh batted with McGrath where it added... Uh, a lot of runs to the Australian total and, and it increased over time uh, through their partnerships as it did when War was batting with others like, I mean, famously with McGill at the MCG in 1998, um, with Colin Miller when uh, he made a bunch of runs in his first tour in in that uh, 99 tour of the West Indies as well. So, I mean, yeah, there are a series of tailenders who benefited considerably through their relationship on the field in partnership with, with Steve Waugh. So the critique that he is selfish, and don't get me wrong, I, as, a, as a younger fella, I was a Mark Waugh. <laughs> as the kind I, of guy who used to go and park outside Jollymont. As the, kind of guy, as the kind of guy who parked at the front of Jollymont the day that Mark Waugh was dropped from the test side with, with a view to abusing Trevor Holmes. Never happened, thankfully. You know, I, I, was, I was prone to the old, <laughs> the, odd, the odd Steve Waugh conspiracy theory, shall we say. I was the, the target audience for them. But as yeah. I've matured, as I've grown... And and been willing to acknowledge that some of that stuff's utter bullshit. This is about as ridiculous as it comes. But each time, I suppose why I wanted to bring it up wasn't so much to relitigate the the, the principal point of Warren, other than just more, more to say that do we just need to stop quoting Shane Warren? I mean, just as a rule, <laughs> does he just need to? I mean, do we just need to acknowledge that there are some people in the, in the public conversation that you know when they're talking about their their area of expertise, in this case, Shane Warren talking about leg spin, quote away brilliant but just taking pot shots because he's got the ability to do so on a big megaphone do we all need to pile in each time probably not in fact we've probably made a mistake mm. by talking about it here today but that's i don't know it's 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 it's, it's addictive whenever this comes up we're drawn to it because it is yeah. such a ridiculous claim it is tricky and I thought about it before I wrote and then I thought I can write a piece that actually has some factual information in it that's not just here's an opinion, here's yeah. a response, here's a hot take. It was let's at least put some numbers out there so that people who are having this argument will have something to be able to use. But yeah, as you say, may maybe let's not go into it next time. But, but for today, I think we should name our Seabus Super Performer <laughs> of the Week, Stephen Roger War, <laughs> for keeping his dignity in a world that seldom rewards such behaviour. Uh, of course, Seabus keep their dignity by investing directly back into the building and construction industry across Australia, creating jobs for members and supporting the industry, Adam. You know and I know that you can find a PDS at cbussuper.com.au and remember that a past performance doesn't necessarily dictate future performance. As indeed was the case with Glenn McGrath. His past performance was not dictated by his future performance <laughs> with the bat because of Stephen Moore. I'm glad we made him our Seabus Super Performer of the Week. Jeff, let's move right on from that. Let's pledge never mm. to talk about it ever again on the final word. That's spat. That's not even a spat, as Balmy put in his piece uh, overnight. Uh, it, it's not a spat when it's yep. just one person. So that's the last we'll say on it. 
Yeah, if it's one way, it's a spit. If it's yes. two ways, it's a spit. Speaking of. Uh, let's, let's, speaking of, moving on to all matters saliva. Uh, saliva has been banned by the ICC Cricket Committee. You cannot use spit to polish the ball anymore. You can use sweat because apparently that's not a corona vehicle. And also maybe the neutral umpires will be out as well. So uh, they've that, that's more a logistical thing that they basically it, it's going to be too difficult to get umpires around the world. So you need to be able to use umpires where they're available. But you can't spit on them. The spit versus sweat. It's a bit of a flow on from a conversation that started a few weeks ago when Daniel Breedig was talking about the ICC's medical committee, but the cricket committee, which is steered by Anil Kumle, made this decision. And it's hard to fault them for coming to this conclusion. Uh, it's going to be hard. It's a reflex thing to spit on the cricket ball and rub it on your trousers, but uh, I'm sure that they will, they will come to terms with this. It's a small price to pay. The first country where all this stuff will be coming into effect will be England at the moment. That's the plan. The things that have been mooted in the last few weeks have been pretty much confirmed at the moment that they'll have a, a lockdown, Paulie Shaw Biodome at Manchester and Southampton. Um, they'll be training in groups beginning from tomorrow at the time of recording in anticipation of that date. Uh, in, in smaller groups, the bowlers coming in first to get their bowling loads up so that they can handle the test match. And then there'll be different functional areas broken into smaller contact clusters. There's all this uh, terminology now that we're going to have to get used to as well as a, a short fly slip and a, a deep backward square. Yeah, this is a good good story from Ali Martin in The Guardian about how they're going to characterise these these groups. So a, a functional area might be the, the, the players on the field, but a contact cluster might be the, the, the players that you're permitted to spend time with at stumps or socially and so on. They'll be tested every day. We talked about this last week, but there'll be there'll be swabbing and, and temperature checks and, and so on throughout the, the nine-week lockdown period. Really positive comments as well from Wazim Khan, who's the boss of the Pakistan Cricket Board. These days, of course, he was at the ECB and at Leicestershire before that, so he understands the, sort of the England cricket mechanics very well. Uh, and he's perspective is that the briefings they've received from the ECB put him in a pretty good state of mind as far as them playing three test matches and three T20s. They'll cram them into a month, so or into four weeks I think it is, not even a month, so they'll be only resting a couple of days between each test match and I think they're going to get all the T20s into the space of five days and, and all the rest of it. They'll be permitted to bring 25 players on tour, which is significant because the ECB have to sort of pick up the tab for that. Um, the West Indies mm. Cricket Board have been a little bit less enthusiastic about this so far publicly, but they've got continued briefings from the ECB and I think they'll find a way to get over the line. Mike Atherton wrote a, a great piece the other day about all this actually, sort of talking about the idea that the big three who have dominated world cricket you know, for the last however long now, Australia, England and India, are asking quite a lot of Pakistan and the West Indies here from a financial perspective in terms of you know what they have to do to get out here and all the rest of it and ethically and all the rest of it um, with the coronavirus and, and whether that will be leverage that Pakistan could use to get England back to play test cricket there sooner rather than later and mm. whether the West Indies might be able to you know achieve a greater support from the ECB at ICC level and all the rest of it. So it's a, even though it, it will be to the benefit of England cricket in the short term and indeed Indian cricket uh, if they get the IPL over the line and all these other tweaks that will be made to the schedule, um, there is a sense that it's the secondary nations, and I hate even referring to them that way, but the non-big three nations which are going to have to make concessions and hopefully that will be recognised and, and reciprocated when these broader structural decisions and, uh, and discussions are being had rather at ICC level into the future. Hopefully it won't be forgotten. Everybody 
amongst those countries is going to be having an eye on the T20 World Cup as well. They'll get a slice of the broadcast revenue for that when it gets played, so it has to get played at some point. Andrew Wu reporting during the week that it's pretty much inevitable that that will be delayed, basically because uh, Cricket Australia won't make any money out of it if there are no crowds to be had and so it would need to be pushed back into the next year somehow. It, it does cross your mind or it does cross my mind that maybe it can be teamed up with the, the Women's 50 Over World Cup which was due to be held in New Zealand next February and, and whether Australia and New Zealand as the, the countries with a pretty good handle on infection rates and so on at the moment might be the, the couple of places where maybe those tournaments could be run back to back. Maybe the T20 World Cup should just be sent to New Zealand instead. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what will happen, the former, not the latter, um, that they'll run the tournaments back-to-back in scaled-down versions of them. So instead of having 16 teams in Australia for the T20 World Cup, maybe they'll have eight teams. Maybe the tournament will be run in, let's say, two and a half weeks or three weeks, and then they would move to New Zealand. So when I say they, I mean the infrastructure around an ICC global tournament. Jeff, um, as we've seen sort of over the last five years or so, it's not just mm. the teams, it's this huge broadcast infrastructure and, and the ICC apparatus more generally, that will kind of move from Australia to New Zealand and then a shorter version mm. of the Women's World Cup would follow. So uh, yes, none of this is perfect, but if they could pull that off, uh, a T20 World Cup, say, in like maybe the second half of February, followed by the Women's World Cup broadly as planned in March. Of course, they'd have to tinker with the dates a little bit. But if those, if those two tournaments could run back to back, and we know, of course, in the past that the ICC had ran events in Australia and New Zealand concurrently, the 2015 World Cup mm. uh, stands out there. There will be that kind of cooperation uh, from a border perspective as well. I'm sure by then it'll be relatively back to normal as far as moving between Australia and New Zealand. That certainly is the vibes we're getting from the Australian government. So, yeah, if, if that were to be the case, then it, it seems to make sense that, yes, it, it's not perfect, but but it'll be something and it'll be a lot of cricket in February and March next year. And I suppose, Jeff, that will mean that the World T20 or T20 World Cup scheduled for India in 2021 will then become a 2022 tournament and, and, and so on. But mm. look, again, it's, it, it's, it, it's better than nothing. It's a lot easier to move a shitload of equipment probably from Sydney to Auckland than it would be from Sydney to Perth. You know, It's a lot yeah. closer. So, so there is that. I don't know how you could get away with cutting the number of teams in half though. Like There are so many teams who've gone through this whole process to qualify for this tournament. That's what they've done. They've, they've won the, at their ICC levels. They've mm. got through the qualifying situations. They've, they've got so much riding on the fact that they're going to have this moment, you know, be part of the big dance, all that stuff. I just can't see how for, from an ethical perspective even, let alone the, the financial ramifications, the ICC could turn around and say, oh, sorry, you're, you're like, what happens? Do you get to play in the next one? Do you automatically qualify for 2021? Do you, you may not even have the same players kicking around by then. It, it's, it's, a, it's a minefield. Yeah, it is. Uh, I suppose the, the counterpoint to that would be uh, the volume of grounds they want to use. Uh, maybe they want to, I mean, maybe they want to try and do it in two or three cities and then it's how many pitches do you, uh, it's just, I guess, the, the whole idea of making the things smaller, um, it, it seems to make sense that the, the number of teams playing mm. and the number of games being played would, would reduce as well. I suppose as well, the if you're looking at the Women's World Cup, that I think was meant to be 
for five and a half weeks, something like that. It was a pretty long tournament in the calendar, uh, and whether they'll as, just, as fifty over tournaments tend to be. Yeah, that, that's right. Well, like whether they'll have enough time to get there before it starts getting, um, you know, they're not right. The weather conditions deteriorate in New Zealand to the point where they wouldn't necessarily be able to do that if they have to move it back a bit. So, yeah, I mean, again, I'm sure this is all being debated and considered and and gone over with the proverbial fine tooth comb. But, but yeah, what you said at the start, Jeff, about having the two tournaments. Uh, being married up does feel logical and, and does feel that's the direction they're heading. The financial conversations in Australia have been getting a bit more forceful as well, Adam. The Australian Cricketers Association boss, Greg Dyer, the, the Players' Union boss, has been pretty critical of Cricket Australia this week for the, the cuts that they've instituted and the cuts that are being projected. Uh, the basic contention here being that Cricket Australia haven't really lost any money yet. What they're cutting is preemptive in case they lose money in the months to come, yeah. which you can argue that as prudent financial management. But the way it's increasingly coming across from those being affected by the cuts um, from the, the Players Association and from the state associations is that this is, is an overreaction and that what it's going to do in the short term is cause a lot of damage. Yeah, it feels like um, there has been a shift as far as their willingness to really go after CA on this point. So we heard from Kevin Roberts a couple of weeks ago saying that they were involved in a constructive dialogue with the ACA on like a daily basis and all the rest of it. And there are reports through that that process uh, to that effect as well from others who've been following the story very closely. But that's the job of the ACA, I suppose. Uh, they, are, they are a client of CA to the extent that, that they are part of the apparatus of Australian cricket. But uh, their job isn't to kowtow either, so uh, they're, mm. they're providing some scrutiny there and um, it'll be interesting to see how CA responds to that. But part of that, it looks like it's in relation to planned cuts that are coming up. So the news coming out during the last week or so that Cricket Australia are looking at cutting rounds of the Sheffield Shield next summer. They're looking at cutting rounds off the Women's Big Bash League and um, keeping that in a couple of cities to, to reduce the travel. That part seems to make sense. But the reasoning for cutting these competitions short is simply cost saving. It's not to do with medical protection or health and safety. It's simply to do with wanting to save money, which, like I said, makes sense if they're going to lose a lot of money. But at the moment, they don't know whether they're going to lose money. Perhaps they're budgeting for the fact that their television partners are both in a fair bit of financial trouble themselves. And so uh, CA have to, to budget for that. But it seems like there's an awful lot of cutting being done when nothing actually has gone wrong yet. Yeah, that was the thrust of Scott Bailey's story uh, today. So he's exclusive uh, from AAP about the WBBL. So that's always been a tournament played over 56 games, not 40. So an elegant draw where every team plays everyone twice. You know, one of the great features of the WBBL really is that they've been able to have that home and away system and carnivals and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, as Bailey reports, uh, 25% operating costs being having to be found. Uh, they're looking at all different areas and it includes the the, uh, the WBBL. So in his story, he has them playing all the games potentially in, in just Melbourne and Sydney. So they won't be moving around the country on this occasion. It shouldn't affect the amount of games on television, he says, but, um, but it will affect how many games are played through the season. They're also talking about carving a couple of rounds off the Sheffield Shield. So making that eight rounds instead of 10. And yeah, as you say, Jeff, it, it seems to be you know, looking at trying to, to fill a hole that that, um, that that may need filling, but we don't know for sure as yet, which is, I guess, where the criticism from Dyer um, links in quite neatly. 
Interview during the week from Matthew Renshaw, one of your favourites. I know you like to get your Renshaw updates and we've had him on the show, of course, before. Yep. He was very forthright with us on the show, um, but fairly forthright in this interview as well. Yeah, it, it was a good read in uh, the, like, the Sunday Mail's uh, magazine, You on the Sunday, so uh, up in Queensland. He, he has proposed to his partner um, through isolation, which is like a lovely story in itself. But yeah, it, it, it sort of read to me like he was pretty fucked up when playing for Australia and uh, like he put a lot of pressure on himself as an Australian cricketer, which um, we, we saw evidence of, I suppose, from a really crude, like, how did he perform uh way of measuring it when he came back and played those two Shield seasons. So the start of the 2017-18 season and the start of the 18-19 season. On both occasions, he was probably mm. in pole position to play the first test and he just capitulated uh, as far as his output on both occasions. Of course, he was left out of the Queensland side uh, by the end of the 19-20 season and took a break after the Big Bash and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, he goes into a bit of depth about the struggles he's gone through. And But mostly what I found interesting was that, uh, that he, he directly addressed the idea that it was too much too soon for him. And again, it, it, it's, it, it seems sort of remarkable that that mm. he is so far off the mark or so far from the, the conversation now given how poorly Australia's openers have gone. I mean, I know that that recovered this summer to an extent with Joe Burns alongside David Warner, but um, through that period where Warner wasn't available and the Ashes series where, what, the opening, the average opening partnership was probably in single digits or something ridiculous, that Renshaw, mm. who was a lock for that, seemingly a lock for that 12 months earlier to play in England where he did so well for Somerset a couple of years ago, he's just so far out of the out of the mainframe now. I mean, he's got time on his side, of course, but uh, yeah, interesting that he'd be so upfront about how hard yeah. he found the whole thing. And it's no, no surprise that he did, you know, coming in, I remember he had his 21st birthday during that fourth test at yeah. Durham Shala yeah. in 2017, so, so coming in that young, but I don't really think he's a long way back if he can put a few scores together, I think he's the sort of player where if the Shield season starts and he can make a couple of hundreds and at around the same time Joe Burns isn't making a lot of runs, I, I don't think it would take a lot of time for public support to build for Renshaw to come back, put it that way. And he's the kind of player... Like, he, he's got... He's still got some credits in the bank from the way that he played the first time around and the way that he, he did the proper sort of Richard Hines hashtag real openers... Mm style of, of going about his game and as you say the fact that he is still a, a younger player with plenty of time on his side so I feel, I feel like he could be back pretty quickly if things fall into place. Yeah he's young as you say he's 24 years old he's had a couple of opportunities to play for Australia and 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 that counts because we, we've seen historically that playing getting dropped and coming back it's often the second or third iteration as a test player when, you, when you're seriously mm. productive in terms of the runs you score so I'm sure he'll be given the opportunity to make it back but yeah it's that whole idea of the pressure is lumping on himself both for Australia and when mm. he was on the edge of the Australian side I mean I guess that's man management isn't it knowing your players knowing your your different personalities and making sure they don't sort of break down that way I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that he did break down that, that's certainly the the language in the interview gives that implication so um, good luck to, to Matt Renshaw as you say a, a, someone we've enjoyed sort of following the career of on the final word had him on the show last year and, and hopefully he can start next year in good shape and congratulations on his engagement and it's very sad news during the week that uh, the radio broadcaster Ellen Jones will be <laughs> hanging up the microphone at the end of the month. I know, I, I know, you shed a tear, and obviously I did as well. Um, this this relates to cricket in the fact that one of the most 
terrible people in Australian public life, a, a genuinely horrific human being in the way that he's gone about his broadcasting career, a narcissist and a bully, um, has a lot of hooks into Australian cricket, which it's not the first thing you associate with him, obviously being a rugby coach, but he had a lot of enthusiasms um, during his time as a, as a schoolmaster and, and involved in the rugby world, a lot of... Um, a lot of side projects, shall we say, and, and one of those was cultivating cricket players. Yep, he's had his hooks into a lot of Australian cricketers over the years. As you say, Jeff, like truly one of the worst Australians, like one of the all-time worst Australians, and his influence in Australian cricket has been considerable. But interestingly, we don't read a lot about that. In fact, I don't think I've mm. ever really read much about Alan Jones's influence on Australian cricket or cricketers past, indeed present. So draw your own conclusions there. I don't expect to read anything about it either, frankly, because that's the way Alan Jones operates. He's got his claws, his tentacles fucking everywhere. And that's part of the reason why he was so influential for so long and why he got away with whatever he wanted to do. And yes, there is a very strong link back to a great many Australian cricketers over a very, very long period of time. Yeah, leave it at that. We're always subtle on the final word. Let us go from topics we'd rather not be talking about to a topic we are always happy to talk about. It's time, Adam, for Nerd Pledge. It's the game of pledges. The game we play with people on our patron page where they send us a number of dollars and cents that correlates to a cricketing number and we have to work out what it is. Uh, are you primed? I'm ready. I've done my work. I'm yep. looking forward to this. First, a couple of callbacks to previous weeks. Alex Crampton's 3.30. He says, we didn't get the first time around. Gave us a hint that he watches a lot of cricket at Edgebaston. The best I can find is that in 1968, England set Australia 330 as a target in the Ashes Test, but that match was a draw. Uh, left not out was Ian Chappell, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Shane Fitzgibbon has said that, Adam, you were correct by naming 418 as corresponding to the 418 the West Indies chased. But uh, Shane says, one minor note, Adam thought that Jason Gillespie was not playing in that test, but in fact he was. I remember this because he stole the keys to the Toyota RAV4 that Ricky Ponting won for player of the series and was doing laps of the oval in it after the presentations. <laughs> That's the value add we love on there, Pledge Jeff. Thank you, Shane Fitzgibbon, for getting that back into our inbox. That's brilliant. <laughs> And uh, Hardcore Lime, Michael Roder, says that the Saywag history Adam proposed for his 284 was fascinating, but not his number, a hint being that it happened at Adelaide Oval. It must, of course, be the 284-run opening partnership between David Warner and Travis Head uh, in yes. a one-day game there in 2017. That was, yes, it was on the 26th of January uh, 2017. I remember getting up at about four in the morning and going into The Guardian to live blog it. So, yes, uh, I remember exactly when it happened. But yes, it, that, that, that yeah. indeed would be the, the 284 stand between Warner and Head when we thought Travis Head was going to go on and be the one-day opener. It didn't quite play out that way. Maybe he will. Maybe, that, maybe that'll be uh, what he ends up doing. But yes, he was fantastic that day, the hometown boy. And a, a big thank you sent out as well to Andrea Balcom who has sent through a, a donation because Nerd Pledge is about keeping the show going. She said she wasn't interested in playing but she's just going to send us a briefcase full of cash instead so we very much appreciate that Andrea thanks for supporting the show thank you new numbers that have come in now Adam 
I've got to confess something to our listeners. Uh, you all know, as I know, that the list is sacrosanct. Nobody changes order in the list. There's no reordering for convenience. One caveat to that is that I have started on occasion to put together people who've got the same number. So right. that means a person lower down the list with the same number might be brought up level with the first person in the list. So there may be a few people skipping up uh, in position, but that's purely because you've got the same number and we are going to look at all of the permutations of it. The first of these pairs, these wonderful duos, Nick Beaver and Simon. Now, Nick Beaver's edited his pledge. It's not a new pledge, but you can go in there and change it to a new number if you want to give us another challenge. 441 is the number from Nick Beaver and from Simon. $4.41. What does 441 mean to you, Adam? Well, I got a bit uh, a bit boutique on this one um, because it related to a Frank Worrell factoid that we talked about last week. So, to refresh, uh, last week we talked about 261 being the score that Worrell made at Nottingham in 1950, which Patch Clap um, uh, we had 261, and that's where we went to with that. Now, it wasn't that, but that's neither here nor there. But seven years later, in 1957, at the same ground at Trent Bridge, Worrell carried his bat for 191, and that was the 441st Test match ever played. So I have had to, <laughs> I have had to angle it in there, but I, I, I'd like it to be true. I want to believe, to quote. Fox Mulder, as I'm so prone to doing. And that was a great summer too. The reason I knew that straight away, the reason I wanted to um, jump into it is I was looking through all the 1957 scorecards last week as part of that calling the shots preparation. It was an like, incredible summer. There were um, so many things that happened uh, that year between England and the West Indies. And you can hear more about that on, on calling the shots. But one of those things was that Frank Worrell carried his bat at Trent Bridge. So uh, uh, that's... That's pretty tenuous. I don't think we've ever gone to no. the number of the test match before. The <laughs> test match number is not something that sticks in the mind. A lot of people, you don't really hear them say, oh, test 1742, that was a belter. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily come up. There, there's also another excellently niche alternative is a, a Plunkett Shield match in which Otago won the toss and batted, scoring 441 for eight. Uh, in reply, Wellington were bowled out for 148. Now, the reason this might have come up is that Neil Wagner took six for 36, not entirely unusual, but his spell included an over in which he took five wickets. So, Four in a row, dot ball, and another wicket. So it's the first time a bowler's ever taken five wickets in one over in first-class cricket. So that could be related to the 441. Yeah, so the first and only time. So there's been a number of times where bowlers have taken five wickets in six deliveries. No one's taken five in a row, but five in six has happened, but it's always been spread out over two overs until Wagner mm. in 2010-11 when he took mm. five in six in the same over. So he holds that special bit of history. Well, I, I'm going to go with, I reckon Nick Beaver is is a big Neil Wagner man, and so he's going for the 441 for Otago. Simon, I think, being the more recent pledgee, I think this might be a, another callback to, to the Adelaide Oval in 1999. We talked to Damien Fleming about it a lot on the uh, live Zoom show that we did. And in that match, Australia made 441. Now, very interestingly, another callback to our first segment there, there was a partnership of 108 runs in that match between Stephen Waugh, who made 150, and Shane Warne, who made 86. <laughs> they put on a century stand when Steve Waugh was selfishly not shielding the lower order from the strike as they put on 108 runs together. So I, I'm going to go with that. Before Warne, later in the test match, of course, went on to drop Damian Fleming's second hat-trick. <laughs> Indeed.
So thank you, Nick Beaver and Simon. Uh, next on our list, Anthony Bianak with 184, Adam, 184. Uh, friend of the show, Anthony, he's been a great supporter of ours on, on social media for, for many years. It's probably not Muhammad Asif's cap number. I, I'm going to sort of brush over that. Um, <laughs> where, where I got to was, uh, of course, you've done some great work on 213, but 184 is a really good number um, uh, because mm-hmm. in consecutive years, uh, 184 was made at the SCG by Australian batsmen against England. Now, you might ask, why? how could it be in consecutive years? Well, that's because of the, the bicentenary test that was played as a one-off uh, in the January of 1988. So in January 1987, Dean Jones made 184 uh, not out. So these were both unbeaten, I should add. Dean Jones made 184 not out against England in the final test of 86-87. And then 12 months later, January 88, almost to the day, David Boone made 184 not out against England. And then to stay with the 184 theme in Sydney, you pressed fast forward 30 years from Dino and Matthew Renshaw made 184 against Pakistan on the SCG. So I've got, I've, I'm, 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 I'm on that number relating to one of three things. Mm. Dino, David Boone, Matthew Renshaw, or a combination <laughs> of the three at the SCG across the span of 30 years. Callback after callback on today's show, Matthew Renshaw getting a second gig. I'm <laughs> going to go with, if Anthony Bianak is a big Final Word fan, Vinu Mancad made 184 at Lords in 1952, and surely anybody who watches this watches this show. If you watch this <laughs> podcast, you're definitely a Vinu Mancad fan. Uh, so, Anthony, that, that's that's where I'm going with it. Next on our list, Ben White and Archie Hood, another double act, both coming in with four dollars and seven cents. What might 407 mean in a cricket context, Adam? Yeah, Jeff. it could be Ben Hilfenhouse's cap number, 407. It could be that Ben and or Archie is a Tasmanian. Uh, they may feel a, a similar sense of sympathy towards Hilfenhouse for finishing his test career on 99 wickets. Of course, he went on that last tour, didn't he? He got taken to South Africa in, I reckon, 13-14 as the like fifth bowler or even sixth bowler in the squad. And he played in the tour game and, and all the rest of it. He was just at the very, very end of his career. He got one more tour, but didn't get a start. So he he pulled up stumps on on 99 test wickets and he was the 407th man to play test cricket for Australia but there there are other 407s Jeff the uh, the big german disco as you're so fond Indeed. of wheeling out whenever <laughs> ben Hill I forgot about up. that um, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, I just had odds on that you were going to use that and I couldn't yeah. believe you left it for me to say instead. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, uh, my, my strategy here is I, I think Ben White is the Hilfenhaus man and I think Archie Hood has come in more recently and I reckon he's gone 407 because the Edgebaston 2005 test was screened in England recently and England on the first day were all out for 407 that uh, ridiculous first innings after Ricky Ponting inserted England after winning the toss and they proceeded to bash the Australian bowlers all around the park at five and over it's what well, you, you look at it and you think about it and it still doesn't make an awful lot of sense Australia pound England at Lords in the first test of that series um, they go up to Edgbaston and of course yes Glenmagrath steps on the cricket ball yes Ricky Ponting sends uh, England in on a day when they absolutely should have batted and and all the rest of it but England go at 
better than five and over. They absolutely flog Australia for 407 in 79 overs. Interesting, there's no centuries in that, Jeff. So it was like a, a real sort of combined mm. assault with Triscothic making 90 off 102 KP, 71 off 76, and Flint off 68 off 62. They hit 10 sixes on the first day of a test match. So, you know, on a number of <laughs> levels. And, and it did set the tone, didn't it? Because at Lords, I mean, I was at that test match and you left that and you, you're thinking, ah, oh, like, you know, for all of the hype, for all of the, the brilliant 50-over cricket the two teams have played against each other in the build-up to the series and the trajectory that England had been on in the previous couple of years. And for all of that, mm. Australia have got to Lords and they've just pummeled them after that first day. And you're thinking, well, you know, here we go again. This is going to be another um, standard procedure with Australia going over there and, and handing it to England. But, but uh, yeah, Vaughan found a way to sort of change the psychology and it was best shown on that, on that first day at Edgbaston for 407. 407, thank you, Ben White and Archie Hood. Uh, another pair coming in next, Dave Brown and Declan Brennan with $4.16, 416 Adam. Okay, so Dave Brown, again, friend of the final word, and Declan Brennan is indeed as well. Uh, both great supporters of ours. Peter George, as it relates to Dave Brown, though, I think might work in that he's the uh, 416th Definitely. Test Cricketer. Proud South Australian. Statman Link, of course, as well, Jeff, because Peter George is one of the men who dismissed Sachin Tendulkar as his first test scalp. He's more known these days for developing the technology around some new bowling boots. I met him last year at the Gabba when he was hawking around this this uh, this new invention of his. I think it was the Gabba where, he, uh, where now his, uh, the boots that the bowler will wear will know if a bowler has overstepped. That's all you need to put these shoes on. I don't know how he does it exactly, mm. but uh, but yes, he was briefly <laughs> an Australian Test cricketer and the four hundred and sixteenth to turn out. I, I think that works because I, I think Dave Diogenes Brown is niche enough that he'd love to get Peter George's cap number in there. <laughs> I am going with well, I mean, there's one really obvious thing, which is the four hundred and sixteen is what Australia made at the Wacker against New Zealand last summer mm. in the first innings there when they batted very slowly um, and and big ish. It could also be, though, Vernon Philander in his final test win, not his final test match, but when he won the first match of that series against England and then they went on to, to lose the next three. But when South Africa bossed that first game, Vernon Philander took four for 16 in the first innings. So I, I'm going with that. That was really his last hurrah, his, um, his, his last great test performance. Yeah, incredible analysis too. It's like four for 16 from like 18 overs with 10 maidens or something like oldie mm. worldy. And I reckon that that's where Declan Brennan would have been. Uh, that I reckon he would have been watching that test match closely and is an admirer yeah. of, of Big Vern. So that, that covers off quite neatly. Dave Brown and Declan Brennan, thanks to you both for being such great supporters of ours. And uh, finally on the show today, Timothy O'Meara, all on his own, 258. Oh, well, it could be, or it could be two for 58. It could be 2.58. What might $2.58 mean, Adam? Uh, by the time we got to this uh, uh, this number, I already had the 57 scorecard back in my head again from Nottingham. I, I talked about Frank Worrell carrying his bat for 191. Well, earlier in the test match, Tom Graveney made 258 in that game, which is mm. um, wasn't even the highest score in the series, though. Peter May made 285. At Edgbaston, in a, in a stand of 411 with Colin Cowdery um, at, at, to start 
that crazy series that I mentioned before, which is still the highest partnership for England in, in any in any Test match. Again, that stuff that we've gone into on calling the shots this week. But yes, maybe Tom Graveney's two fifty eight. Although I doubt it. I think we were talking to Tim a bit on the live show. Jeffy's from my part of Melbourne, um, and mm-hmm. I think of a similar age to me. So it's probably unlikely to be digging around scorecards from uh, from the from the middle of the previous century. But um, but that's that's where I got to. There's quite a few England links coming in as well. If he's from your part of the world, I don't know how this stacks up because 258 is what Australia got bowled out for at the MCG in, in the 2010 Ashes loss in the second innings. Yep. So when, when England, you know, England effectively won the match on the first day bowling them out before lunch, but the win was sealed by bowling them out for 258. That's right. Oh, and that's the other thing I, I, I spotted on this was that 258 was what England made in both innings of the Lord's Test match last year. Now, this this, this definitely could be it. I'm sure Tim O'Meara is a, is a diligent stato nerd. And to make the same score in both innings is, is very rare. So the first innings, England were bowled out for 258. The second innings, of course, they declared five down after Ben Stokes brought up his century. Up until... 2015, that had only happened eight times in the history of Test cricket. So fairly rare, you know, to, to do the double. Um, that I found that in, in Stephen Lynch's amazing weekly Ask Stephen column on Crick Info from back then. So this might be the ninth time. I, although, Jeff, when going through it, I reckon we've been at a Test match between 2015 and now um, and, and Lords last year. I feel like this is something that, that has come up a, a couple of times for us. But at the very minimum, it, it, the, the, the Test at Lords last year was the ninth time in all test matches. They've been, what, 2,400 played or something like that across 144 mm. years. So that's quite rare. So it could be it could be that. It's it, it very vaguely rings a bell, but I'm not sure where the bell is located. Uh, the other possible option is that 258 is the last score ever made by a team in one-day international cricket. The last ODI huh. played uh, at the MCG between Australia and New Zealand when they called it off. Huh. Unless they, no, there, were there any games after that? No, that's well, that, the last that, one played in Australia. That's surely yeah. the last one. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Oh, I, I know that. I know the West Indies and India were playing around then, so they might have had another. They might have had a game after that. But anyway, the last one played in Australia. Um, Australia made two hundred and fifty-eight and won the game. So talk that's about where I'm going for spoil for choice. We've had so many options there for two fifty-eight. <laughs> if we've missed it with all of those, Tim, then well, I don't even know. I don't. Yeah. Know, I don't know where we're going next. Uh, that has been Nerd Pledge for this week. If you'd like to play Nerd Pledge, you go to patreon.com, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash the final word you can send us a number there and the best part is that when you do that you can help support the show financially so that we can keep making it during these unprecedented times they're so unprecedented oh they're so troubled they're all of the adjectives um you can you can do that you can help us keep making the show we would love that uh, patreon.com slash the final word send us a challenge and see if you can stump us let us now move on to our second favorite segment on <laughs> the show not every week but the weeks when we remember to do it it's time adam for something else Satchin. Sachin, Sachin, Sachin. Take it away, please. Jeff, when I saw this on the run sheet for today, instead of thinking of uh, Sachin, it's your birthday, happy birthday, Sachin, I was thinking happy birthday, Sachin, i.e. happy birthday, Helen, from Things of Stone and Wood, <laughs> that sort of hit from, uh, <laughs> from uh, the early 90s, but... We're, we're, again, we're options galore when it comes to, to Sachin and he's been busy, Jeff. 
This segment is very complicated. It's all about who was wished happy birthday by Sachin Tendulkar on Twitter this week. First off the rank, Kyron Pollard, West Indies player and former Mumbai Indians teammate of Sachin. There was a nice photo of them in the, the proud blue and gold of the Mumbai Indians playing together on the field, Adam. There's been so much discussion with us on Twitter about this that trying to crack the code, who gets the birthday shout-out and the fact that mm. Pollard did play at the Mumbai Indians might give some hints. Maybe you need to have played with or against Sachin was one suggestion, but um, yes, I did mm-hmm. enjoy that through the week that it did prompt a lot of back and forth with us on Twitter. It couldn't be everyone who's played with or against because uh, someone put up a, a beautifully handwritten list of every Indian player who'd played test cricket with Tendulkar and that was like 170 players or something. <laughs> so, you know, if you added in the one-day players, the state players, and then everyone he's played against, right. it, it, would, it would be impossible to get to. You do not have to be a cricketer to get a gong. Uh, Maduri Dixit, which is a name you have to pronounce carefully when bringing it across into the English language. Uh, Bollywood actress with many hits, including Total Damal. It's a real caper, real uh, real ensemble piece, that particular film, her highest grossing. Uh, and to, to round them out, uh, Buddha Purnima. It was the celebration of Buddha's birthday, the festival that celebrates the birth of Prince Siddhartha Gautama, who went to sit under a tree for a very long time and changed the world. But it didn't just stop there for Sachin this week. It wasn't all birthdays, Adam. It was Mother's Day as well. Now, now the word I, spelt A-A-I in Marathi, is a term of respect for a mother. So Sachin posted A-A-I to me because, besides everything else, you are always amazing and irreplaceable, A-A-I, for his mother. So oh. that was nice. He also had a, a salute to the armed forces, a post for International Nurse Day, a donation to High Five Youth Foundation, and a shout-out to Surav Ganguly for their ODI partnership. It was a big week of positive vibes on the Sachin timeline, bringing good vibes to the world. Thank you, Sachin. Happy birthday to you. Lovely work, Sachin. Jeff, that's about time for a break I reckon uh, after we take a breather we'll be back with Crick Buzz's Australian correspondent Barat Sundaresan and Jeff before we go to Barat a few words about our great mates at Future Talent Sports Cards now Jeff, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about future talent over the last few months and the discount at 15% off you can get uh, by being listeners to The Final Word, but they're expanding their, their relationship with the show this week and they've launched a new competition with the idea being that if you sign up, you can receive some of their stash for free. Yeah, that's the idea, given that a lot of sports clubs are pretty low on cash at the moment and trying to keep body and soul together. So there's a competition where you can get 300 bucks worth of Future Talent sports cards for your club for free. Uh, so you can get your teammates on there, you can get their photos, get their stats, get their bios, uh, cheer everyone up a bit at the time when sport is not happening. And, and all you need to do is visit the website futuretalent.com.au and put in a slash and a competition, uh, slash competition. I'm sure you'll be able to find the link if you go to the site. Enter your details for a chance to win. And if you're a listener to the show, you can also leave a message there and they'll send you out one or two <laughs> of the very limited edition run of cards with Adam and I on them for the, the final word team, the current team of two that we're rocking at the final word. Yeah, so the idea here is that you create your own sports cards, images of your players, um, you put the biographical information on the back and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, 300 bucks for free if you are successful in winning the competition. That's not bad at all, which means 
means that, of course, that can contribute to um, replacing what would otherwise be maybe participation trophies or something else that you do for your players. Good also for keeping morale up through uh, this period of, of uh, I guess, social distance and, and isolation and all the rest of it. There's the option at the moment to download and share the cards for free. So you can generate a bit of buzz on social media being able to share these cards uh, around the club and, and with teammates and, and all the rest of it while you're off the park specifically. So futuretalent.com.au forward slash competition. All you need to do is put your details in and you are in the running to win $300 worth of free kit from Future Talent. While you're there, design your card, take a look around the website. It's absolutely fantastic. Jeff, you mentioned before the cards from, from you and I, they are uh, reflective of the, the work that goes into these cards. They're made with love. And yes, put, put a note in there and you can get a copy of the, not only the Adam Collins card, but the Jeff Lemons card. There was a typographical error on the first one. So that's your, <laughs> that's your, uh, that's your uh, not only limited edition, but uh, that'll be when, when Jeff's a, a national treasure. Uh, in 20 years from now, you'll yep. be able to say you've got the, the limited edition uh, misspelled sports card. Make sure you ask for that uh, in the... Uh, I actually found some of them in my house the other day as well. I found some of the, the Jeff Lemons cards. So if Heath hasn't got any, I'll send one to you. Um, but yes, Heath Evans and Emmanuel DeGeorge, two great friends of mine for many years since we were kids and they've, they've been doing a great thing here for over 10 years. Future Talent has got a perfect rating at Facebook and at Google. Um, they've, they've made over 200,000 cards since starting off in 2010. They've they do a great job um, for a lot of community sports clubs around the country. They're a fantastic alternative to, as I say, participation mm. trophies and, and all the rest of it, and a creative way at the moment to, yeah, keep your team engaged when they're off the field. And if you don't win the competition, they're like a buck a card, so you can probably find a way to swing it. Uh, futuretalent.com.au. Go and check them out. Good people, and uh, they'll give you something fun. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And our guest on the show today is CrickBuzz Australia correspondent Bharat Sundaresan, who knows about all things India and India-related, but is currently in probably the most COVID-safe city in the world, Adelaide. Uh, what tidings from South Australia, Bharat? Hello, guys. It's been a while. I don't know when I was on last. It feels like a long, long time ago. I think... Maybe the day before the World Cup final. We did like a long interview with you at Sydney yeah. last year when India beat Australia for the first time in a test series and then we backed it up with... Um uh, 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 I can't remember what we were talking to you about the day before the World Cup. I think your reflections on the tournament that was. Yeah, I was in a very. Lords. I just remember being in a very romantic mode that day. That's all I remember, <laughs> and extremely hungover. Yeah, and that's why I was a little late. <laughs> yeah, I was like sleeping in our camper van at that point, and yeah, I, I almost didn't make it for the podcast. But yes, Jeff, like Adelaide feels like another world. Really, we we. We haven't really felt the brunt of COVID-19. Have you guys noticed that people have removed the 19? People just say COVID as if like it, it, it's, it's someone's name. Uh, it kind of irritates me. But anyway, yeah, but it's, yeah, it feels safe. Like we've been going out mm. like, like always and uh, getting the odd takeaway. You need to, you know, you have to help the local business. That's the Aussie way. And um, uh, doing that a lot. And yeah, we can go to the park. We can go anywhere. So. Yeah, not much has changed, which is a good thing. I mean, I'm not complaining about it uh, because you read the news coming in from India and it's really bad. And uh, like, yeah, it, and you know, so yeah, Isha and I keep talking about how 
you almost feel guilty at times that oh like you know people talk about oh we are in lockdown and we like you know so at times when people ask me from india like what it's like i i, I kind of lie i'm like yeah yeah it's at times it can get to you man like yeah it gets to me i don't know what gets to me but i, I you know just so that they don't feel like mm. yeah, i mean the grass is that green on the other, other side of the indian ocean even though we're going to talk to you about indian cricket today given your your previous beat uh, you really have embraced Australia. I think we talked about this last time when we had you on, but uh, you sent me a picture last week of the book you're currently reading, which is the biography of John Platten, former Hawthorne of South Australian football. <laughs> You've really thrown yourself <laughs> into what it is to be an Australian. <laughs> yeah, no, it, my good friend Walshie told me about the 1989 final, the bloodiest final there was, mm. and how John Platten was concussed and he kept, kept coming back and you know taking those marks or kicking those goals or whatever you do in footy uh, and uh, like you know it, it, it's and apparently he interviewed him later and he said he didn't remember anything after the second time he was concussed till mm. the next morning so yeah I, and when i w- walked into a news agent the other day and saw that book i was like yeah, this is for you call it had to be my first footy book right of course it had to be my first footy book yeah barat we didn't get you on the show today to talk about australian rules football believe it or not uh, what we want to talk to you about is <laughs> because Adam and I have talked a lot about the situations in Australia and England where we are in the last few weeks as far as cricket is concerned I guess there's an idea from the outside at least that the BCCI is King Croesus, they're so rich that they wouldn't be affected by this situation but what is the reality of uh, cricket in India, where is it at and uh, the BCCI as the, the central organiser of the game where are they at financially and uh, at the moment and how things look in the immediate future actually you know what like with australia india has been very lucky in terms of the timing of the virus i mean you might just look at it from the outside and say what are you saying the ipl has been postponed indefinitely and yeah i mean it will cost them a lot of money but uh, because cricket's almost like a 9 month sport in india they can still pull it off later in the year so honestly you're right like the bcci is so 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 rich and they really haven't been affected to any great extent by what's happening right now because you even hear the tone coming out from star like the host broadcasters for the ipl who paid yeah. a lot of money for uh, like the rights they seem pretty calm as well they already planning on uh, i read an interview uh, like with the Uday Shankar the CEO and the boss of Star and he's already talking about what they will be doing and there's there's a lot of positivity coming out of India which means that they'll pull the IPL off somehow so they really aren't that affected players are getting at least the uh contracted players are getting paid their money and India hasn't lost out on any domestic or international cricket so uh yeah like i was thinking about it the other day if anything the BCCI and Indian cricket were always the vaccine for everything that world cricket needed now after this pandemic they're going to become the cure as well nice line i can already see you writing it uh when this all recovers maybe when the ipl restarts now we're reading reports and we talked about this already on the show today about uh, the ipl potentially sitting in the window that the t20 world cup was scheduled to in in october is that uh, are the BCCI in a position where they can almost dictate terms to that effect? They could say, look, we are going to have that window uh, and it is more important that the IPL takes place than the T20 World Cup. And indeed, if it were to take place, I mean, what are the financial implications for the BCCI getting this off the ground? Or perhaps the, the better way of framing that is what would happen if that if they didn't um, start an IPL this year? How significant would the BCCI be whacked? 
Oh, it's a huge amount. Like just money-wise, they're talking about four thousand crores, which almost doesn't even look sound like real money. And I know you guys are not very comfortable with lakh and crore. It comes up to around nine hundred million American dollars, actually, which is wow. a lot of money. You think Jesus. of the amount of money that's spent on sport, and uh, that also includes like the broadcast rights and the sponsors, Vivo. Uh, there you go. There is uh, Chinese. Uh, like you know influence on the IPL as well uh, because they have been the sponsors since 2016 so you don't even get that those kind of amounts in monopoly so uh, it, it is it is such a big amount that the BCCI you would think that they would be like shitting their pants right now but just it, it couldn't have happened in a, in a better year i mean again Strangely, for Indian cricket, imagine if the coronavirus had come last year, when neither Australia or India, or Australia or England, had anything to do with the BCCI, uh, they might not have the BCCI would not have had the kind of power they can wield this year because mm. Australia is so dependent on Kohli uh, coming and saving Australian cricket. Like even now, right? You pick up the newspapers here or watch this six pm news on seven. I'm amazed at how often I get to see Virat Kohli on the TV. screens like you know because australia has also like played their cards saying that if india don't come there we're going to miss out on 300 millions you know people are talking about going back to the big 3 now we'll be left with the one and only one which is the bcci so mm. uh, i like you know they could easily say i mean and already you your the tone has changed within the bcci they're all, they're almost taken it for granted that the world t20 or the t20 world cup's not going to happen and it, it'll be left to them right i mean at the end mm. of the day so I see them really flexing their muscles this year. One of the hallmarks of the way the BCCI run cricket in India is that it's very flexible. Um, often things aren't nailed down until the last minute. I remember coming for the T20 World Cup in 2016, and I don't think the venues or anything were even locked in about three or four weeks before the tournament started. Whereas you have a World Cup in England, they'll tell you the the dates 18 months ahead of time. So I can definitely foresee that. Getting an IPL on is something that they could do relatively quickly once it was decided when and how it was going to happen. How tight are the the contracts and the expectations in terms of what they have to deliver to all of their broadcast partners, their naming sponsors, all the rest of it? In terms of you know when when would it be decided that the BCCI had not delivered an IPL on time? Would they be able to do something like play it? Two IPLs next year, or something like that, if they needed to push it back beyond this calendar year. The answer is they can't. So if the IPL doesn't happen this year, uh, because the way it is structured is you they sign up for deals which extends for five years. So you literally pay year by year. If they fail to host the IPL this year, it's gone because Vivo is not going to make. The same amount of money by having two IPLs next year, and it's the same for stars. So they can push it till the last minute and still, like you know, pull it off. Because right now the virus is reaching a kind of peak in India. Like you know, they've divided into zones, and uh, the major cities like Bombay and Delhi and even Calcutta and Chennai are all in the red zone. So the number of cases are building up. So even though. Yesterday, uh, the circular came out saying uh, you can have sport in stadiums. Uh, immediately, people thought, "Oh, this is the like you know the BCCI must have had some influence on the government. That's why this decision has come out." But immediately, the BCCI came out and said, "This does not mean that we're going to play the IPL because it's a long, long way off. Because people still need to travel and but it it it's just that there's so much money." 
involved in the IPL if they really you hear about like you know hubs and all that with the AFL and the NRL that's me sounding Aussie again Kolo and like uh, but uh, it's something which is very feasible there I mean you could fly, everybody flies chartered anyway like so you can fly people chartered you can just cordon off an area and it's and it's India you can actually manage just police the area and uh, keep people out so it, it, even if it, like so they're they not going to take a decision before August anyway but I mean the only question then is will they go ahead without international players or not so we've heard some franchises like Chennai Super Kings say no nah, we won't be comfortable with that and one thing about Star is they are very demanding they will also like not want an IPL to just go ahead with just Indian domestic players even though if, even if you have a Kohli and a Rohit Sharma but you'll still need your AB de Villiers and what about if the infection rate in India uh, remains as high as it has in, in the last month or so and it doesn't uh, the curve doesn't get squeezed the way that it has in other parts of the cricketing world. Do you, do you think there'd be an appetite to, to move the IPL? Let's say they, they can come to terms with, with the ICC and, and that tournament does get jettisoned, the T20 World Cup, and there is this window for the IPL in October. Do you think the, the, uh, the BCCI would be inclined to move the tournament out of India if that's what it took? I would be very surprised because you heard Sri Lanka come uh, and offer their their country to host the IPL and Sri Lanka is actually a great country to host the uh, a tournament like that because they have so many stadiums within like two or three cities mm. but having said that I don't think Star will be very comfortable with that but they took the IPL to South Africa Bharat. they played one of the early seasons in South Africa so wouldn't this be the similar sort of thing yeah and they also had for 2014 they took the first half to the UAE if you remember because of elections I mean it generally has always happened in an election mm. year and it happened last year but they like actually just pushed it back and still held the whole thing in India because again you have to realize that was happening in a Sony era and I think Sony were a lot more flexible with these things than Star Us. Uh, like to answer what you are like in your question Carlo, if the infection rates keep going up that's the only thing that can stop the BCCI from I mean the coronavirus as it stands can is the only thing that can stop the BCCI from hosting that IPL so if it does happen it'll happen in India that's the way I look at it presumably they'll be playing without crowds if they do get on what sort of difference do crowds make in the IPL financially in terms of you know who's making the money is it the state associations who are hosting the games is it the the franchises themselves and is, how important is it to the financial health of the tournament to answer your question about who makes the money, it's the franchises which make the money. So what happens with the IPL is 15 to 20 days before the tournament begins, the franchise literally like takes over the stadium. So they then everything from the ads they put up to, uh, of course, ticket sales and everything. It, it's almost like the stadium belongs to the franchise for that. They almost lease it out to the franchise for uh, the two and a half months, like including the time leading into the IPL and the season itself. So it. But again, you're t when you talk about IPL franchises, you're talking about like, you know, groups and businesses of people who are putting so much money. I'm sure they're, they're, they'll be okay with taking the pay cut from tickets and uh, uh, because I still see Instadia sponsors coming in. Like, you know, I'm sure Star will cut a deal where they ensure that enough of like that is uh, shown. If, if, if you see a 10 second ad it, on TV, it's around twenty five thousand dollars. So, but uh, when we're seeing the pictures coming in from India at the moment, I mean, some of them are quite stark. Yes, yeah. uh, where uh, different parts of the population perhaps don't have the same access to being able to lock them themselves down. 
And as a consequence, uh, I mean, the tracing and the tracking and so forth, there's, there's none of that kind of capacity, is there? So uh, when we're looking at India, is, is there a sense of just how bad this might get? And in turn, whether it might be just more than one year that's affected, that this might be sort of an enduring problem with, with consequences that the, the Indian people will have to live with for, for many years. It could, you know, because the thing, there is no social distancing in India, let's just face it. It's not possible. There's just too many people and like so little space. And especially if it enters the slums like it has, uh, in slums of Bombay, there'll be 18 or 20 people living in a 100 square feet room. And like, you know, I'm talking about families and I grew up in a 400 square feet home with like five people and a dog. So, you know, we just used to, there is no concept of personal space and like even the numbers we get are very skewed i'm sure it's much much more but like you know you're only get nobody gets tested for coronavirus posthumously anyway the numbers are only like people who can get tested who want to get tested who are not like people who are walking like 2000 kilometers to get home i mean those are the kind of stories which break your heart and tell you like you know how how far behind india is in some 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 aspects it's just crazy so mm. uh, like you said it the virus might never leave like maybe there for like the next five ten years but life will move on much quicker in india than elsewhere because you have no choice there is no social security so when you lose a job and when you lose your house that's it like it's, nobody's going to bail you out so the virus might stay but in india it'll just move on in terms of the lockdown and in terms of the finances with the less lucrative forms of cricket the the ranchi trophy the the age group tournaments women's cricket and so on how is that going to be affected or will that will those strands of cricket still be backed by the bcci i think so i mean if 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 they're going to pull the ipl off they'll still have domestic cricket and right right now they might end up reducing the number of games because it's an insane amount of games they play some they host 3000 games across age groups and like you know women's cricket and because uh, after the supreme court thing they had to include every state so every state has a team now people are not going to complain about uh, oh like it's a travesty we can't go watch the Ranji Trophy Baroda play Haryana but even if it doesn't go on people won't notice because people just say yeah 3000 games are hosted like nobody knows where it's happening or what's happening in there I'm glad you did your reading it certainly showed Bharat Sundaresan of Creek Buzz lovely to have you on the final word once again Hi I'm Natalie Jumanis and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And joining us on the show today, a man we've been waiting to speak to for quite some weeks as we lined this up. Matthew Beggs has been a great supporter of the show right from the beginning, really. And uh, there's there's a level on Patreon where if you subscribe to that, then you get to come on the show and chat to us about what you want to chat about or tell us what you want us to talk about. But actually, we're inverting that and completely taking advantage of Matthew because we wanted to talk to you about what's going on in your corner of the world in that you're a teacher and you have been tweeting prolifically during the uh, the whole COVID shutdown about what's going on within the education industry and the challenges that you've faced in having to suddenly uproot your entire teaching program, switch to online remote learning, um, potentially switch back again and all of the upheaval that that's caused. And, and that's actually something that Adam and I were interested in and, and wanted to question you about first. I think like when we knew in about mid-March that it was coming, like we just got prepared. We just got everything 
set up from the back end, got every single student, about 100 kids set up on Google Classroom, which took time and effort to make sure they all knew how to log in because we kind of knew when state when they were announcing okay stage one the smaller gatherings we're going like schools that are eventually going to to close and we probably spent two weeks mm. before in term one before that shutdown the shutdown was going to sort of be announced getting everything ready and then the chaos that was always going to happen happened because you're going like once parents started pulling their kids out which happened the week before that sort of we got mm. the four days that was like chasing up parents and things like that but it's been a term where there'll be a lot of teachers exhausted but I think a lot of teachers will actually ironically go back as better teachers because they've been for that's pulled some teachers into an environment they're not used to which is working remotely not necessarily working in a nine to three fifteen day environment is having to, it might be you're talking with some kids at 10.30, another group at 2 o'clock and interacting that way. But I think the biggest challenge is every school in Victoria is going to go back, or the prep to twos go back next or from the 26th, every school is going to go back differently because every school has done it differently. And that, I think, is going to be the issue. And I teach grade 5, 6, so I've got grade sixes who are coming back for six months and trying to get ready them ready for secondary school is a huge challenge. And we're trying to organise the transition for that at the moment. And that is a massive challenge when I've got one kid who's in grade six, yet he's not even in the country because he's locked down overseas. And I've got a grade five student who's also locked down overseas and won't be back probably until late June. Through this period, I mean, you, you've touched on it a bit there, but just to elaborate on that point, how has your day looked, day to day? How has the, the classroom, the digital classroom environment looked? Has it been, as you say, sort of um, setting up appointment times like you would if you're in the workforce more than it is like in the schoolyard? Like give us a sense I of I think because our school followed, we did no video, live video. It was all set up through the day. So it was all conversing via text. The first live chat we had with the kids was last week. So it's been a month plus where the only kids who've actually seen a teacher's face have been three of them that have gone into the, into the school because they're, they're the children of essential workers. The rest of them have not seen a teacher for a month plus. Other schools have done it where they've run at normal classroom times or the teachers have gone into work. But our situation where we're trying to just converse and converse and converse via text is really... It's challenging, I won't lie about that, but you see some kids have risen to the challenge because it probably suits them better. They're probably kids who don't function as well in an environment of, I've got to be in this classroom at nine o'clock. There's some, I've got one student at the moment who's finished his work by 9.30 in the morning. He's up at five o'clock, finished by 9.30, has the rest of the day to do everything. Whereas I've got another one who finishes their work at six o'clock. Starts at one o'clock in the afternoon, works through it, submits it at six o'clock at night. This sounds like how it would be if Jeff and I were in the same cl class and we were homeschooled. <laughs> Jeff would be starting his work at like eight o'clock in the evening and submitting it at sort of four yeah. in the morning and waking up at midday. And by contrast, I'd be getting out of bed pretty early and knocking it off so I could open up the rest of my day. It sort of illustrates the the difference in approaches between Jeff and I. Yeah. 
And I think that that's what's been great to see is that these kids are actually going to come out of it pretty adaptive, pretty resilient. We just need to then, when we get mm. back to school, run with it. We don't want to get them set back into the, okay, this is the way you're going to work, which we know for certain groups of kids will work because they need the structure, they need the boundaries, they need that environment. But the kids who've adapted, we need to find ways to support them so they can continue that growth. Because I've got one kid who's at the moment who is absolutely flying because he's working at his own pace. He's asking more questions because in the classroom he wouldn't speak. But in a digital environment where there's not that face-to-face interaction, he's not having to ask in front of 25 other kids. He can ask a question one-on-one. He's far more confident and his responses have got a lot better. At the start of this, when things were kicking off, you're talking about the the levels officially changing, but that really things were changing ahead of that. You know, parents were pulling their kids out of school well ahead of being told to do so. Uh, tell us a bit about that period, that first few weeks when everything was changing around you, but it wasn't necessarily official. That week in, I guess it's the second last week of term one, where everything sort of went up and it was like, okay, we're going to, in the last week of term, You get, it finishes on the Monday, the four days preparedness. We had a drop off every single day. So the first day, our group of five, sixes was about 75%. By the end of the week, it was 50. And then on the Monday, I think we had 32 out of 100 turn up. So parents were already making that decision. And I think one of the challenges when we when we go back in Victoria, I think you'll get 75 to <laughs> to 80% will go back pretty much regularly because the decision by the government to say that you're not, if you're keeping your child at home, they're not going to be provided with lear- remote learning. It's basically we're back, we're back, is going to create challenges for kids who need to stay at home because We've got three kids who've got underlying health conditions. So technically they shouldn't be at school because they do have underlying health conditions, but you're not going to be provided. We're not formally meant to provide them with support, but we will still provide them with something because you can't just keep... So then that's just on you as teachers to have to do the extra work to provide... There There will be some that will go and will stick to the letter, but then there'll be others who'll take it and go like, well, this kid potentially might not be back for three months. And it's not like you're going on a holiday for three months, which is different. You're staying at home mm. in a very fixed environment with very fixed structures in terms of when you're going out, how you're going out and who you're going out with. And if that kid's in, say, mm. grade, five, grade I'm talking primary school, grade six, they're going to need support because they're going to need to be able to make that transition to when they go to secondary school. Matthew, a question around the discourse around the around teachers at this time. It, teachers have come under some ridiculous criticism from some parts of the public debate about the idea, you know, you're all at home and all the rest of it and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's pretty cruisy, which obviously is ridiculous and you're sort of making that point at the moment 
quite well. Um, how does it feel as a teaching fraternity when you when you see some of this junk pop up online? Indeed, uh, from sort of dog whistled in, in some respects from by politicians in perhaps in different parts of the world, not so much in Australia. But when you kind of get the impression that that people aren't respecting the work that's being done at the moment, I think the interesting one is what happened this week to me. Yes, there's been a dog whistling, and you ignore it. You just tune out because you go like, "This is my time to do my job. I'll work twice as hard because I've got kids to support." But it was really interesting seeing the push to get back, like getting the kids back and things like that. And you start reading the Facebook comments and you should, it's just a lesson, you should never do it. But you start seeing the parents go, now that a date's been put in place to send the kids back, they're going like, I don't want to send my child back. Yet you were pushing for them to go back because you were finding it too hard at home and I understand if you've got three or four kids at home are all trying to learn it's not impossible it's such a hard work for a parent to do their job while working with their kids who are meant to be working at home but just that discourse shift of some parents starting to go like well no I'm not going to keep I'm really disappointed in the decision to say no if they're going back they're not going to get formally be given extra work the expectation is if they're going back they're going back. And it's, yeah, it's just a it's just a really interesting, delicate balancing act, which I think in the two weeks, once the younger kids in the year 11s and year 12s go back from the 26, I reckon that two weeks will be very, very interesting to see. Like there'll be a push from some to, as is what's happened in New South Wales at the moment, where basically it's gone from the day a week and meant to get them through to term three for them now basically going back from the 25th of May. So from next, or from the 25th, which then makes it really, really hard because teachers are prepared, say, three or four weeks worth of work and then they're going, I've got to scrap that and I've got to get teaching a completely different mindset because I'm teaching in front of a classroom. And it's a different mindset. It's a different structure. You can't expect kids to be producing magnificent amounts of work consistently because they'll have ups and down days they'll have days where they might concentrate all day and other days at home they might concentrate for 15 minutes and they're just gone Matthew thank you for answering our questions Um, we're also supposed to answer yours or talk about some of the things that you want to talk about my first question actually relates to what's starting to come out with the the ICC regulations potentially going forward with the, the interesting one to me is the neutral umpire decision. Like, I think the ball decision, that will work itself out eventually, but the ICC coming out and saying potentially no neutral umpires because, and you can understand why, because it's travel costs and things like that of flying people around the world. Is there going, that challenge of having to go back to home-based umpires, is that going to create issues or is there lack of crowds going to negate that issue? Yeah, a good secondary point there about lack of crowds. We, we talked about it on earlier in the show uh, about the, the decision being made by the ICC. My starting point was that this has all moved on quite a bit from when home boards appointed umpires uh, before the era of neutral umpires. In other words, the ICC elite panel has, has I think, 
meant that the credibility of the officials is is not under question the way that it might have been in a previous era. So, I mean, we can all cite examples, can't we, from our childhood of where we've seen instances of, of test matches and other games which, that have been affected by terrible home home umpiring, if you like, for want of a better descriptor. And that was, as, you know, Australian umpires were, were subject to that as much as any, anyone from the subcontinent. People forget that. And Rob Alinda on YouTube is, is really keen to make this point a lot in his videos that uh, you know, we, we often talk about subcontinental umpires, but um, you go back and look at some of the stuff that happened in the 80s in Australia, it was dreadful as well. So, um, but I, yeah, I, I like to think we've moved on from there and I like to think the, the debate around it would would move as well in, in that direction so that, um, that this can actually be a, a, a part of cricket going forward, that you wouldn't prohibit umpires from umpiring in the country they're from. Because at the end of the day, it's their profession too, isn't it? Isn't it kind of a, you know, to, to my way of thinking, if you've you've done the yards, you've gone through grade cricket, club cricket, you know, shield cricket and all the rest of it, and then you can't ever do your job in front of your friends and family, like I think there's something to be considered there too. Yeah, and it builds on that point that, with the ICC elite panel is that the issue, say, for Australia and England taking up a fair chunk of that panel, they just rotate through the same umpiring group in on tours over and over again. Whereas if you allow, you've got an elite panel, they should be able to umpire anywhere. It's why you pick an elite panel. Yeah. That's kind of what I think. My other one is, and it was really interesting watching, the fir- watching that ODI before it happened with no crowds is thinking which players are actually going to be negatively impacted by no crowds. Because, like, I look at the moment that Warner even forgot he made 50 because there was no nothing to acknowledge him that he'd got past his 50. It was only until the sort of group in the stands brought it up that he got to 50. Like, we talk about the impact of crowds on players and players get that adrenaline, but you look at some, who do you see potentially being negatively impacted by a lack of crowd to respond to. That's an interesting one because there are there are the players who aren't affected. I, th- I think one of the things we were all amazed at in the Ashes last year was how unaffected Steve Smith was by all of the, uh, the bile that was coming over the fence at him. But I think he was telling the truth when he said, I didn't even notice it. I didn't know it was happening. He's the kind of player who probably could play in an empty stadium and not notice just as much as he wouldn't notice if it was full. Uh, but I think it's those players like Warner or, or like Glenn Maxwell who are who have the the showmanship. You know, they're the ones who feed off the crowd. It might also benefit some of those players. Like talking to Brad Hodge at our live show, Adam, when he was talking about coming out on the MCG at Boxing Day and just being completely overwhelmed by it. Damien Fleming talked about that as well. Uh, taking that away might might help quite a few players. But yeah, it's probably the the more showman sort of batsman, and maybe the bowlers as well when. When you're tired, when you're, you're struggling to come in for your, say, your, your spell at the end of the day of a, a day of test cricket and you're bowling your 15th or 16th over for the day and coming back for your third or fourth spell and uh, trying to, to get that energy up, I would have thought that's the time of day when having the crowd behind you could make a real difference. Uh, Matthew Beggs, thanks so much for coming on and having a chat to us. As Jeff mentioned at the start, uh, you've been a most loyal uh, and dedicated uh, supporter of the final word. We're, we're immensely grateful and we're thrilled that you're able to make some time to join us on the show. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It really is massively appreciated from both of you.
Thank you. Some of the nice things that, that have been able to happen over the last few weeks in solitude. Thanks to everyone for their messages that they've sent through on, on the patron page and so on. If you want to join up there and send us a nerd pledge, it's patron.com slash the final word. Uh, thank you to Bharat Sundarason for joining us on the show today as well to talk about Indian finances, politics and the BCCI. Uh, thank you to Bad Producer who... Make the show happen every week. DC does a huge amount of editing work. Uh, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards running that company there. Thanks to Seabus Super for having our backs and to Future Talent. You can go and find their sports cards at futuretalent.com.au. Anything I've missed, Adam? You've done a beautiful job there, Jeff. Again, thanks for everyone for listening and getting through another bumper marathon edition of The Final Word. This is the end of another bumper edition of The Final Word. They're not getting any shorter. They might start to get shorter once lockdown ends, but we don't have anything better to do, frankly. Uh, there's going to be another Encore edition this weekend, Adam. We haven't decided who it is yet, but we'll be putting that together. We will indeed. That'll be out on Friday night Australian time. And uh, they'll be calling the shots, Adam's other doco uh, podcast, which is on the same feed as well. So track that down if you haven't. Uh, aside from that, thank you to listening for the show. There would not be much point making it if you didn't do that. This has been The Final Word. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins with Matthew Beggs in the background uh, signing off. We'll see you next Bye. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And some stories I can tell you. Just